This is the time of year where we start to um, visit one another and some of our, uh, our relatives come down. And some of you have already experienced that. You maybe travel during the Thanksgiving holiday and or there's, there's, there's um, some plans that uh, you will have visitors that come to see you. And a couple weeks ago, I had a visitor, uh, my son Brian. So my son Brian's 20 years old, he lives in Florida. And um, during his visit, we spent some really good time together. We went for a hike, and it was a good hike because generally when Brian and I talk, um, our talks go something along the lines of, how you doing, Brian? Good, Dad. How you doing? Good. All right, good talk. That was, that was good. That's usually the extent of our talks. We don't go too deep. Um, I don't know how it is with your son, but during our, our, our time and we went hiking, we actually got into some really deep things, and he was talking about um, how right now he's in a vocation, and he's enjoying what he's doing, but he's not really where he wants to be, and he knows where he wants to be, but he's not quite there. He's kind of expressing, he started to express this tension he feels, kind of being in this in-between time that, hey, I know that's where I'm going, but I'm not there yet. And today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent, we usually look back on the first coming of Jesus, and we often see it as an on-ramp to Christmas, but it's just more than that. It's, it's actually a time of tension. It's a time of wrestling with tension as we reflect on Jesus' first coming, but also his return and his second coming, or his second advent. And today, we start a new sermon series called Everyday Advent. And so, what, I, what, what, what we need to do is really wrestle with this tension on these in-between times. Because we live in these in-between times, between the first and second coming of Jesus. And we see that Jesus came first as a humble servant, but he's going to return as a conquering king of glory and judge all of mankind. Therefore, everything that we do is for Jesus. Our work, our service, everything, it matters to Jesus. But there's tension in that because, again, we live in these in-between times. We live in this time between the manger and between the throne. He assumes his rightful position as king. And so today what we're going to do is I want to embrace that tension in a message entitled Manger to Throne. Now, I know that you don't have the scripture printed on the back of the bulletin, but it will be up in the screen, or if you have your Bibles with you, either on an app or um, just go ahead and turn to the two passages, Luke 2, 6 and 7, or Matthew 25, 31 and 32, uh, 31 through 32. And today what I want to do is I want to make three observations when comparing the first and the second advent of Christ, and I want to explore the tension of these things. And then I want to extract some practical ways that we're called to live as Christ as our King right now in our everyday so let me pray and ask God to bless this time. Father, we come to you and we entreat you by the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us the things that we do not know. Open our hearts. Be our teacher, be our guide. Help us to embrace this tension and to live for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see is, first observation is, obscurity precedes clarity. Obscurity precedes clarity. Luke 2, 6. This is the, the birth narrative of Jesus. While they were there, verse 6 says, while they were there, there being Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. 
There, there came a specific time in history, an intentional point in history for the baby to be born, Jesus. But we see that Christ enters this world not with fanfare, but with obscurity. And as we look back, we see that many people agree that Jesus enters in the first advent during this time in Bethlehem in one of the worst times in history to be a Jew. This, this time right now is, is, is ruled by the Romans. The Romans rule all the known world. And the Jews are a, a culture that are, are being ruled by the Romans. And there's, there's an oppression there. They don't necessarily have this prominence. And just the mere fact that they're in Bethlehem is because there was, there was a census that was being um, declared. And so they had to leave their home to go back to Bethlehem. And then there was other laws that just seemed senseless after the birth of Jesus, where there was the state-sanctioned uh, infanticide, where, where babies were being killed. And so things just didn't seem like this would be the right historical time for the king of kings, for God himself in the flesh to be born into a, a Jewish culture. But then we read that she gave birth. Not with any fanfare. Now, when we read it in the biblical text, we, we think of it as, hey, there was angels, there was shepherds, there was all these things that were happening. But generally speaking, this went very, Jesus, the birth of Jesus went unnoticed by the larger culture. It wasn't like there was this huge fanfare. And so Jesus enters into this, 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 this time, and it's very obscure. Not really sure who he is. And this obscurity continued his whole life. He would go to his disciples and he would say, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they would respond to him and say, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're a good teacher. And then he even said to them, who do you say that I am? And they would say, well, and Peter gets it right. He says, well, you're, you're the Son of the living God. And yet then he says something totally wrong afterwards and sticks his foot in his mouth. And we see that as he preaches in his own hometown in Nazareth. People go, isn't that the carpenter's son? So it wasn't like they sat there and said, oh, he's the, the, the exalted king of glory. He's God in the flesh. They didn't know who he was. They're saying, isn't he the carpenter's son? And then even when he stands before Pilate, Pilate goes, are you a king? They don't know who he is. There's this obscurity. After his death, burial, and resurrection, we see that on the road to Emmaus, there are some disciples that are leaving Jerusalem. And they even say, well, we thought he was the one to deliver us from the Romans. And he's like, you didn't get it. There was this obscurity surrounding Jesus. But we see that when Christ returns, he's going to return with crystal clear clarity. Matthew 25, 31 says, when. It starts off with when. Not if, but when. The Son of Man comes in His glory when He manifests the, pres the, 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 the presentation of God's majestic nature. Usually we see that in the Bible as, as brightness and light and all the angels with Him and legions of angels with Him. So he'll, He's going to come back at a, a specific time in history. It's going to be a global event. There's going to be no doubt that He is the King of Kings and the lords of lords. And he's going to bring clarity to who he is. There's no, no longer going to be obscurity there. Actually, in Revelation 1, we see that he talks about coming in the clouds. It isn't like people are going to go, oh, I wonder if that's Jesus. Everyone's going to see it. And there's going to be clarity there. 
Now, as I talked with Brian, one of the things he mentioned with me is that there's just so much obscurity in life. He said, he mentioned this idea of like, there's so much information that's just being thrust upon him and his generation. And, and, and he has this, this feel like he needs to embrace all of this information that's, that's being fed and, and, you know, by the, the social media, by, by um, whatever mediums are out there, electronic mediums. And he just feels like there's just so much and he just craves the simpler times to the point where um, he's planning on being a blacksmith. I didn't even know blacksmiths existed anymore. I mean, I see him at the Topsfield Fair, but that's about it. But apparently there's, there's something there. And so he craves for this, this simpler times. And at times, we could feel that same, same way too. We feel the tension. It just feels like maybe we were born in the wrong part of history. It just feels like we're, we're not, we don't fit in. And there's a tension there. Every single day we walk in that tension. We crave for simpler times. We could feel as if, why am I here, Lord? Because I don't feel like I should be here, either vocationally or in your family or, or wherever. And so much in our life is obscure. We don't know why we failed, perhaps in our marriages, or why we failed in this vocation, or or why our kids ended up this way, or, or why we are not in this house instead of that house. And there's all of these things that are obscure. We don't know why we're sick or why that person had to die. There's obscurity there. And, it's, and, and at times it's, we could forget that Jesus Christ is the king of history. Not only is he the king of history, he's the king of our history. What's happening to you and what you've experienced isn't somehow a, a, a shock to God. He's not sitting there going, I didn't see that one. He's saying, I have ordained it. I am the king of history and I have you where I want you. And that's hard. We wrestle with that tension. And the full implications of that, we quite don't, we don't get it. There's some obscurity there. But when Jesus returns, he'll provide clarity to those things. So we live in this time where we have to exercise faith. Advent time is a time to remember that we are people of faith. And the faith we have in Jesus and his return is not like a faith where we go, hey, I have faith that this is going to happen and we know it's never going to happen. It's a for sure faith. And he'll bring clarity to every single pain that we've ever, ever encountered. And not one millisecond will be wasted. And this is a, especially a time of year where we need to exercise our faith. See, things, uh, things just seem a little bit more, a little bit harder this time of year. So the question I have for us is, what in your past, or what are you currently dealing with right now in your present, or even in your future, do you need to just trust our king with? What is that thing? Just lay it down on his throne. So that's the first thing. Second thing we see is humiliation precedes exaltation. Again, Luke 2, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So we see that Jesus doesn't come in fanfare, yet 
we see Christ enters the world in humility. He enters this world with a, a, in a culture that is oppressed to a mother that is unwed. She's an unwed teenage girl, which is just a, a social no-no in that society. And although he's the firstborn, which would normally carry with it some sort of cultural prominence, because he's the firstborn in Mary, it actually becomes a, 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 a stamp of disdain and humiliation that he doesn't discard or, or time doesn't heal that in that, that culture. I mean, he's from a small culture, a small town. And if you are from a small town or from a, a, a culture that is very close, you know that things aren't easily forgotten. And we read even in John 8, he's going back and forth to the Pharisees. If you, ever, if you want to take a look at that at some point, he's going back and forth to the Pharisees, calling them, he has some pretty harsh words for them. He calls them sons of Satan is really what he's calling them. And he says, well, at least we have, they say, at least we have a father. And so they bring back this fact that he, he was a fatherless child. So he never gets rid of that stigma. And there's humility there. And we see that the king of the universe enters this world as a humble baby. A humble baby. I mean, if I was... I'm going on a limb here. If I was God, thanks, thanks that I'm not, I don't think I'd come back as a baby, a helpless baby. But yet, he comes back as a helpless baby, wrapped in cloths, which if you've ever seen a baby wrapped in cloths, they're restricted, they can't move. Almost a foreshadowing of what his whole earthly life and ministry would be, where he was restricted, nailed to the cross, Yet he embraced this. He embraced his humanity. And I want to dwell on this for a little while. That the eternal God of the universe steps down from his throne and enters into our human experience. He knows what it feels like to be restricted. He knows what it feels like to be hurt. He knows what it feels like to be oppressed. He knows what it feels like to be an outcast. He knows all of these things. So we have a king that is not detached from his people. He understands what we go through. I don't know if you, if you understand how, how big that is. There's no other claim, there's no other God that claims that. So our God is close to us. And as a baby, he was placed incapacitated in a feeding trough for animals. Because there was no room for him in anyone's house. We often think there was no room for him at the inn. But it wasn't that. The end, it was really, there was no room for him anywhere in Bethlehem. So you're telling me that no one had extra room for an unwed teenage mother about ready to give birth. And when I read that, I see that no one was willing to accept that because they would have to accept that social shame. Yet he's, he's born in a, in, a, in a manger and put in a feeding trough. I don't know about you, but if someone came to my door and was about ready to give birth, I think I would let them in even if I didn't know them. But here, that's not what happens to our Lord. And so we see he's an outsider. And there's humiliation in that. But we see that Christ, when he returns, he's going to return in exalted glory. Again, back to Matthew 25, verse 31 and 32. 
He will sit on his glorious throne. Now when, when, when the Jews are hearing this and when we hear this, they're going to hear it with different ears, but when he sits on his glorious throne, a throne, a chair that is privileged for, for a monarch, and he's sitting, this is the posture of someone with authority who's about ready to make a decision. He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. Every type of person who existed in all of history will stand before him. The Son of Man, the firstborn of God, although he did not receive prominence as the Son of Mary, he is the prominent Son of God, the firstborn of God. And he will sit on his throne, judging all as the exalted King of glory. He will take his rightful place to rule, not as a helpless baby this time, but as an exalted king of glory. And he'll, he'll rightly resume rule over all things. And we read at this time when he sits on his throne, and this isn't like a, hey, he might, like, we're not going to see this. This is like a, we're actually going to see this happen. We're going to experience this because everyone will be there. And when that happens, Philippians tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Every tongue. Every person will acknowledge it, whether they acknowledge him on earth or not. But when he comes back, they will have to acknowledge him. Every single person. Now, as Brian and I walked, I, I said, I admit, like, I don't understand this generation. And I hate, I, when I say that, I sound like, like, like I'm old, and I don't like that either. But I'm like, I just don't, like, how could, uh, like, how could I reach your generation as a pastor, Brian? And he started talking about some things. But one of the things he, he mentioned was he has this fear of being attacked. He's like, Dad, everything that you do is on social media. Everything's out there for the public to see. And if you say anything, it just gets attacked. And the loudest voice wins. And I just get so tired of that. And so it, 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 it's this, this pressure that people want to have me conform to a certain way. And so I just deal with it by, by adopting a neutral stance on everything. And he mentions this. And I'm thinking, this is a 20-year-old guy telling me this. And he feels that pressure. And I think this is our tension too. We have this, this pressure of feeling like we're, we're called to be conformed to a certain image. Yet, we have to remember that Christ is the king of our everyday. He's relevant on every single thing that we do and say. And so, we need to take a stance for him and for his glory, for his glory and, and what he wants us to take a stance on. And oftentimes, we feel like we just need to take this neutral stance and not get involved. Now, I don't know if you remember this poster, but do you remember the poster? It was like a cat, and like it had the paws, and it was like holding on like this. Hang in there, baby. If you've never seen that, Google it. It is hilarious, all right? Hang in there, baby. But here's the thing, friends. It's not enough for Jesus followers to just hang in there and wait for Jesus to come back. He never said, hey, why don't you go ahead? Why don't you, be, why don't you become my disciple? Go ahead and retrench and do nothing, and just wait for me to come back. That was never what he called us to do. He said, take a stance for me. I am the king of your every day. And he has set the precedence for us 
to advance his kingdom through humility right now. So we're called to improve the things that our king has set before us in our frontline ministries. Each one of you has a frontline ministry, and we're called to redeem that for Jesus Christ. So what does this mean as we, as we advance the kingdom in humility, as he, as he inaugurated the kingdom in humility? This means that we're going to be uncomfortable. This means that we're going to experience rejection. It means those things. This isn't about moralism here. I'm not saying be a better person. What it's about is, is serving Christ excellently in our everyday and accepting the consequences in this life for those things, for the name of Jesus. There's consequences to this. And we're going to suffer that. And it might be humiliating for us. And we do this in humiliation. But here's the thing. On the other side of that, there's exaltation awaiting for us. Jesus has showed us that. We will be exalted in Christ. So I want us, during this Advent season, I want to challenge us to just change our everyday routines a little bit and reclaim your front line for Jesus. So what does that look like? It's just simple things. It's not a major thing. This might mean that you write a note to your spouse and just give, show, show them some encouragement. That might mean you pray silently at your workplace to just redeem the area for Jesus. It's just little one-degree shifts. I want you to just try that this Advent season. So that's the second thing. Finally, we see that grace precedes judgment. Grace precedes judgment. Now I'm going to go back to a, I'm going to bring in a Romans passage here, Romans 10.4. We read, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We see that Jesus Christ entered the world to bring righteousness. Because the fact of the matter is, is we are not righteous in and of ourselves. There's nothing good about us in and of ourselves. God isn't sitting there going, you know what? You're saved because you're so lovable and righteous. We know our hearts. We know what we think. We know what we feel. We know what we do. And we fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus Christ enters into this world. And he, lead, and he lives a perfect and righteous life. A perfect and righteous life. One that we could not live. And then he's crucified. And he dies. But he's resurrected three days later. And when that resurrection happens, that is the Father saying, I accept your sacrifice. And you see, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, it isn't a matter of the physical pain, it's the emotional pain. It's the spiritual pain. It's the first time that the eternal son was separated from the eternal father. It was the first time that he felt the weight of sin, yours, your sin and my sin. It was the first time that he felt the wrath of the father that we deserve. But yet he's resurrected three days later. And the father says, I accept that. And we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Yes, our sins, they're wiped away clean. But you see, just because your sins are wiped away clean doesn't mean that you're going to heaven. You need to be righteous. And so when we put our faith and trust in Christ, his righteousness is given to us. So we are righteous in Christ. 
And so when we stand before the Father, the Father says, you are righteous because you are in Jesus, my Son, the one who I love, the righteous one. So now is a time of grace. God has given us grace in Jesus. But there's going to be a time where there is no more grace. We see that when Christ returns, he will uphold the righteousness as judge of the world. You see, you only have grace if you have a real judgment. Real grace only exists if you have real judgment that exists. You can't just say everyone's saved, that's how this thing works, because then it's really not grace. Grace is the undeserved free gift of God. And so there's a real judgment, and when Jesus returns, he will return as the judge of the world. Matthew 25, 31 through 32 says, he will sit on his glorious throne. All nations will be gathered there before him, and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, this is imagery that Palestinian Jews would understand. You see, a shepherd, in a far-off way, he'll see sheep and goats, and they look exactly the same. But as you get closer, you see who are the sheep, who are the sheep, and who are the goats. And what this is saying is that they will be a personal one-on-one judgment for every person that's ever lived. Any person that's ever been or will be, will stand before Jesus and he'll judge each and every person. This is the final, ultimate, conclusive trial of the world, where Jesus is judging everyone, including us. And you and I will be there. We will all be there. So what does this mean for us? Because you say, well, I thought I'm saved by grace. You are saved by grace. But you still got to stand before Jesus. And I, I think of it like this. As a kid, my parents, I was very blessed to have parents that loved me very much. And I was always afraid to disappoint my mom. And I knew I was a child of my mother, and she loved me no matter what happened. But when I did something wrong and I had to give an account to her, there was still a, a fear that was involved in that. Even though I wasn't going to lose the right or the, the privilege of being her son. And for us, it's the same thing. When we stand before the Holy God, when we stand before Jesus as the judge of the world, we'll have to give an account for every single thing that we've ever done, ever said. And although we are saved by grace, there's a reverent fear that exists on this. Because we're going to have to stand before him. So what does this mean for us? Well, as I talk to my son, I realize that his generation and him, he wants to be part of something bigger. You know, I think they've been exposed to um, a global world. Maybe some of us, when we grew up, not so much. But he, he sees things that are happening all around him. He wants to have a global impact. And I think for us, we deal with that tension too. We want the things that we do to have an impact in life. And here, we see that we have an opportunity to embrace the bigger mission of Jesus Christ. You see, our grace compels us to tell other people about Jesus because a real judgment is really going to happen. And so we want to go and we want to tell people about Jesus. We want people to experience the grace of Jesus. And you might sit there and say, well, I feel guilty. You're making me feel guilty. That's not my intention. My intention is for you to hear it and say, this is an urgent thing that we're called to do. There's only going to be one time to preach the good news of Jesus, and that's right now. And it has a global, eternal impact. 
And we're compelled by grace to do that. And there's tension there because we don't want to be judged by people. We don't want to feel like, well, I'm kind of pressuring people into something they don't want. Listen, this is a time, especially this time during Advent, where actually people are open. They want to know about this Jesus thing. I mean, they, they hear about sweet little baby Jesus. We want to tell them who Jesus really is. We want to tell them for this whole thing. We want to dispel some of the rumors. We want to talk about who he is and why faith in Jesus is such a big deal and the grace of God and what that means eternally for people. Because people need to hear it. This is the best gift that you could give someone. And there's an urgency here. Because Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge every single person. So, who on your front line is God calling you to share the gospel with this season? There's somebody there, somebody that's been on your heart. Now, I'm not prescribing a way to do this. I'm just saying, who is it? And if you have questions about, well, how should I approach this person? How does this work? We can talk through that. Just, it's a natural thing. Tell people the hope that you have in Jesus. It's going to come up this, this season. Now, as I conclude, and we, Brian and I, Brian and I were walking, I said, okay, you're dealing with this tension, son, about your job and all this other thing, so what are you going to do about it? And I had a proud dad moment, because he said, well, dad, I'm just going to take it one step at a time. And I thought, yes, my son is developing grit. Yes. And it's the same thing with us. We just need to take this one step at a time. We're going to deal with this tension. Just take it one step at a time. And this time tomorrow, you're going to be somewhere doing something with somebody. There will be tension. But remember that Christ is the king of the moment. And he's placed you there for a cosmic purpose to redeem all things unto himself. So this Advent season and beyond, may our lives Sing to the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come.